This podcast is brought to you by G Adventures. They help you connect to the world through small group travel. Their award-winning tours, safaris and expeditions bring you closer to their world, its people, their culture and their way of life. Because wherever you go and whoever you meet, you open yourself to change. And the more small changes we all make, the bigger our world becomes. Our world deserves more. Our world deserves more you. This podcast is also sponsored by our B Corp friends at Kooks Wine. Proudly handcrafted with love in Australia, Kooks make wine for a new generation, one that belongs to the people who enjoy a good drop and like us, think the world is a much better place when we give something back. Every time you buy a bottle of Kooks, you're also supporting other businesses and people who are doing good in the world. Kooks is also a B Corp, which means they have social and environmental considerations at the heart of everything they do, while also making a profit. To read more about Kooks and other B Corps we love, head to www.dumbofeather.com forward slash by better by B. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Dumbo Feather Podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. I'm Diane from Dumbo Feather, and this month we're bringing you a very special episode, a conversation between our friend Hugh McKay and the one and only Nigella Lawson. We loved being swept away in this gastronomical conversation, which was recorded live in front of an adoring audience for the School of Life. Nigella and Hugh chat like old friends about everything, from why cooking for others is one of the best ways to show we take them seriously, to the relationship between food and self-care, to why a table was the first thing Nigella bought when she moved into her new home. It's a beautiful ode to the role of food in our lives and how it can bring us all closer together. Welcome, Nigella, and congratulations on the wonderful new book. Thank you. It's really wonderful to be here. Uh, We're going to talk, of course, about the social and cultural Mm -hmm. aspects of food in our rapidly changing society. But before we talk about those big picture things, I wonder if we could just spend a moment talking about you, Uh, and in particular, how you got into this. Uh, Your close connection with cooking, uh, is that something from childhood? Um, Yes, it it is. I cooked from a very, very young age. My mother believed in child labour and would get us... (laughs) Working. I mean, really, these days you would be taken into care. Um, you know, standing on a rickety chair by a, an open flame and stirring away and being left to do that. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't that sort of uh, cooking as entertainment. It was absolutely, she really didn't want to be doing it herself. Um, she was a wonderful cook, but we did things. And, uh, and the thing is, although some, you know, she, I've inherited her impatience, and, um, and certainly, I, I remember the slight f- feeling of tension as a child that I was not whisking the eggs fast enough or pouring the oil slowly enough when making mayonnaise and you know, wondering whether I'd done something right or not. But actually, I did learn a feeling for cooking and a feeling for food and, in a way, a sense of uh, it being in terms of you know, a, a place to belong mm. and... Uh, mm. And I always loved that. I loved the cooking much more than I liked the eating as a child. I didn't really start uh, becoming a proper eater until I was in my teens. And I often say that to mothers of young children who are fretful that their children won't eat you know, much. And, uh, you know, I certainly turned a corner. Um, but it had never occurred to me that this would be in any part um, my job or a career. Um, I was very high-minded and would have thought it was a strange thing to do. Yes. But I... So I was a journalist for a long time. Well, I first went into publishing, I was a journalist, and I wrote about the arts and books, and then I wrote an op-ed column 
for a number of years, which means I had an opinion about absolutely everything. I had to stop it when I just thought, I know I've written on this subject before, but I can't remember the view I held. Because, <laughs> you know, you have to kind of inflate a view. It has to become... Uh, and I'm rather grateful I'm not a columnist now because you grow to, you, you know, you grow to be very cynical about yourself. But I've never felt that in writing about food. And I first, I read about food actually as a restaurant critic when I was quite young. And then my uh, first, my late husband, John, always said to me, you're so, um, you're so sure of your views about what you like and what you don't like in food and what goes with what. And... Um, I think it's too many years of being in restaurants with me and with me losing my temper because I thought it was a ridiculous combination or something. And um, he said, you know, you should write a book and you should call it How to Eat. And I thought this was, I, I thought this was a nonsensical idea, but um, I did write it and I wrote it for a variety of reasons. I wrote it because I felt that um, cooking had been dominated by professionals. Mm. And it was restaurant food that was being spoken about. And it was that sort of ethos that was being championed, um, which is, a, I think, quite an unforgiving, um, an, an unforgiving way to go through life with food. It doesn't make it a, re, a very relaxed relationship because it's, it's, it's about performance and it's about the person producing the food rather more than the food, yes. Yes. and I and I and I thought it was quite important to, because I'm you know I'm I have no training whatsoever, other than you know hearing my mother hissing at us for doing something <laughs> differently, and I also have I'm quite a clumsy person. Um, anyone who's ever seen my programs will know that I chop very very badly and knock things over quite regularly. Um, but you don't need you know it doesn't matter you can. You can still cook. Cooking is about flavour, and it's about feeding people you love. And I did, and I also do feel, you know, if if you needed a qualification in order to cook, human beings would have fallen out of the evolutionary loop a long time ago. So that was important for me. And also, and this perhaps brings it a lot to how you write about uh, life and food, which is that my uh, my mother and my sister Thomasina died very young, and. Um, our conversations, and one of the things that had always sort of linked us was would be about food. What are you cooking tonight? And what are you eating? And we cooked together. And so, um, and it felt very difficult when they died. And at first it felt very alienating having that conversation be silenced. And I, in a way, rebelled against it. And I needed to continue the conversation. And I needed to, it's, it's an ugly word, but I'll say to memorialize them. And for me, the only real way of doing that was through their food. So there were many things that fed in mm. to, you know, starting, to, well, mm. becoming a food writer, mm. but, but they all really are about a relationship with food, I mm. think. It is interesting that it, it wasn't as though this was a burning ambition you had to do no, this. No, far from it. Uh, like so many people who've been brilliantly successful in a field, it wasn't the field that they were aiming for. Well, I think most things in life, good or bad, I think, you know, are, you know, are accidents. Mm. You know, meeting the person that you fall in love with or, mm. you know, maybe being for five days in an office and suddenly finding you were interested in a job you didn't know existed mm. before. Mm. And I think, you know, and I, and I think that that's... Uh, one doesn't know, young, a lot of people think they can plan everything. You can't plan, uh -huh. you can plan if you want, I mean, but it's pretty pointless. Yes, yes. Um, There's an old Jewish joke, isn't there? How do you make God laugh? Answer, mm. tell him your plans. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I think it's a very important message for school leavers, isn't mm. it? Not, not to feel as though at this moment you've got to have the whole thing mapped out, mm. you've got to know what you're going to be doing. I know, and I, and I do say to, you know, when, you know, sort of young people, my children's age and you know, their friends say they don't know what they want to do. I always say that most of my friends are doing jobs they didn't know existed yes. when, they, you know, when they started work. And I did various jobs. I always used to say I've 
worked in every, I've written for every section of a newspaper except for the business and sports pages, but then I once wrote about football. So, um, so I went through every, you know, I've done a bit of everything. Yes. And uh, nothing's ever wasted. Either you learn that that isn't what you wanted to do, but you learn things and it's interesting. And I feel that you can't, if you decide in advance what it is you want to learn or want to do, you've already um, discarded so much experience that you have in life. Mm. And in the same way, I think that I always, you have to fail. Um, you can't succeed in anything in life unless you risk failure. I, I think um, I've got to jump. Yes. Uh, well, the new book is called At My Table. Uh, so let's, let's talk about the table. Um, I mean, the table obviously is a really potent symbol of mm. so much, a symbol of sharing, a symbol of belonging, a place at the table is a very important concept. Yes. Uh, it's a symbol of emotional security, I think, for, particularly for kids growing up. Some very interesting research published um, by a researcher at the University of Cincinnati, mm. uh, a study of 500 teenagers showed that, uh, and this is extraordinary really, but this, is, this was the result, uh, that kids who eat around the family meal table at least five times a week are much less likely to get into trouble mm -hmm. uh, with drugs, uh, with, with um, addictions of various kinds, mm -hmm. uh, and with general misbehaviour, as well as doing mm -hmm. better at school. So there's a very strong link, isn't there, between the table as a symbol. Of, and, and the very first sentence of your new book I'd like to read, when I moved into my first home, before I did anything else, I bought a table. A table not just to eat on, but to live around. It's a yes. lovely, lovely concept. Well, I think, it, I think it makes a huge difference. And in fact, you know, fairly recently, um, I moved into a new home. And again, I, I uh, got uh, the table in when we were still sleeping on mattresses. Because <laughs> yes. in a way, you can sleep in a bed, but then... It, if you don't have a table to sit and eat around, you are living rather distinct lives mm. um, in a house. Mm. And I think that, you know, the table can, as we all know, I mean, I don't want to glorify it because, you know, I've, I found sitting around a table quite anxiety-provoking when I was a child. Um, and I know that people have, you, you know, we've all witnessed family rows. Yes. Not that I, in my family wasn't a great rowing family, but certainly... Um, it's a, because it's quite a highly charged emotional site anyway, mm. I think it's that you can, have, yes. you can have us. But, but I think in a way, um, you don't want, you know, chilly politeness is not what you want out of a home. No, no. Um, and I, I like quite a chaotic table. I'm quite happy with, you know, people talking over one another and really getting heated about getting their mm. point across. Mm. And I also... I, I like I like the feeling the feeling of the conversation that comes out of a table. For me, it's quite important that tables are not large. I think yes. again yes. It, that makes it too like a public space. Yes. I would always rather. I mean, when sometimes I've had Christmas when really people have more or less been you know sitting on upended boxes and squished and more or less or more or less half on someone else's lap because you had to get so many people around a table. But mm. that but actually that's so much better mm. than feeling the, the conversation. Um, can't be held at a sort of normal low yes. level. I say normal yes. low level, everyone seems to shout a bit more yes. now. It's interesting, I, I'm reflecting on an, an aspect of my own research, one of the things that I've often asked people to do over the years is to talk about the highlights of their lives, the, the, the mm. moments that they've really treasured, or the dreams they have of a moment that they would treasure, mm. and it's always about eating. And, and it's always about being gathered around a table Roughly as you've just described it, Nigella, mm. rowdy, chaotic, mm. you know, people really interacting. It's not always like that when families do get around the table. I can recall pretty excruciating meal times from my own childhood. Mm. Um, but even the excruciating—you've really just made that point. Even the excruciating moments are part of the socialisation mm. of kids to learn that this is this is who you belong to. This is this is your place, mm. and it isn't always fun, and it isn't always lovely. Um, but it often can be. By the way, one of the things I was really amused by and enjoyed in the book was your story about uh, the astronauts' table. Oh, yes. Yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you this is that I, I read an interesting article uh, about uh, the life of astronauts. And when uh, NASA first designed, you know, spaceships, they didn't give them tables to eat off. Not one, you know, they weren't really eating proper food. And also, there is no gravity in space. And it, the, they, they made it completely functional how they would eat everything. And after a while, the astronauts requested uh, NASA to put tables in, even though they had to be, it, they had to do a strange thing to keep them to keep tables flat and strap trays on top and how to sort of stick food down or whatever past as food because the astronaut said at the end of the day we want to sit down at a table and eat like humans and I think that it was a very artificial semblance of home but just a semblance of it and a yes. feeling of sitting around together um, really made them feel less alienated I imagine the yes. alienation in space must be acute Yes, yes. Uh, that, that phrase, eat like humans, mm. is a lovely, poignant yes. phrase, and it carries a lot of freight. Um, because humans, that, that's who humans are. We are, at the moment, it's fashionable to talk about how selfish we are and how we're all driven by ruthless, mm. uh, competitive self-interest. And that's true of all of us some of the time. But the deeper truth about us is also the nobler and the sweeter truth about us, which is that we are a cooperative yes. social speak. We're herd animals. And so sitting around the table, eating together, is in a way the quintessential symbol of the herd living as a herd. And that's why I think, all right, and that's why inviting people to eat with you is, in a way, it's, 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 a, it's a very uh, intimate and welcoming thing to do because when you eat with people, you are sharing something, and you're sharing something of yourself. Yes. And I do think that, um, you know, I like, I like the conversation about food, and I like, the, I like the, the fact that it is the same. And I feel that often now, it, it isn't quite like that, that at schools, when I went to school, I know people here always take their, you know, the children have to take lunch with them. And although I really complained about school lunches when I was a child all the time, that actually it is quite good mm. to eat the same thing as everyone else. Mm. Mm. And in a way learn to sort of, uh, you know, I'm so old fashioned, you know, learn to sort of put up with what's put in front of you. Yes. And I do think there's something that creates, sometimes I think, a, a very individualistic society when everyone is eating something different, mm. you know, around, mm. around, around a table. I feel sometimes it's like having pools of individuals rather than a group. Yes. And, I think that's, and I think that's a great pity. And I do think as well that, that there is a way in which when you invite people into your house and someone wants to bring something as well, that yes. they want to offer something of their self. They don't, they don't just want to take take, eat, they want to provide. Yes. And I think that in that sense, you're right, we are artistic. It's in our, it, we, need, we need to feed people and we, and the, we need to feel looked after by others mm. as well. I mean, mm. both are true. Yes. And I, in your book, in The Art of Belonging, I'm, I remember being very struck by your saying that if you go to someone's house and no one offers you even, you don't even get offered a, a glass of water, you feel uncomfortable, you feel like you're not really welcome there. Mm -hmm. And it's not because any of us are gonna die of thirst. And it's, so it's not even, it's not function. Mm -hmm. It's actually much more that you don't feel welcomed. In, I mean, Julia Child used to say, didn't she, something like, you know, a tea without a cake is just a meeting. Y yes, and, yes, um, yes, exactly. And I, and I think that there is, there is so much you that you offer, and I think we need to be accepted for that. And I know that, you know, when you feed a new baby, when it's not new anymore, but when you've stopped, when you've stopped breastfeeding it, and the baby makes this ultimate rejection of you by starting to want food from another source, <laughs> and uh, it that I remember writing about this in my first book and giving uh, new uh, parents the advice always to make the food. Um, to make whatever food it was ahead, all those purees and endless bits of mush, and freeze it because then if you had to um, create a bit of a safe passage of time between making the food and giving it to the baby, because then you wouldn't feel the, such a deep wound if, yes. the, if the baby rejected the food. Whereas yes. when you've been working on it and pureeing things and you had the baby, you know, <laughs> then they shut their mouth. 
very, yes. very tight because they refused to let that food go in. <laughs> um, and I think because it's, we do have a need to sustain life. Mm. And I think it sustains emotional life, food as well, because you can perfectly easily survive um, eating the right nutritional balance of, you know, of, of food and the, um, it doesn't matter where you eat it, you could be standing up in a, you know, in, in the top of a staircase and you would stay alive. But I think you would, you would start wilting in the same way as babies who aren't held, you know, they have that, mm. that condition known as failure to thrive. Mm. And I think we as humans don't thrive unless we share um, unless we share food with other people. Yes. Not always, I have to say, I love cooking for myself and eating alone too. That also is a joy, but it's, a, but it's not, but I wouldn't want that to be my everyday mm. um, experience. Mm. Uh, apart from our biological, uh, that phrase you just used about sustaining our emotional life, I think is a, is a phrase I'd like to hold on to. Mm -hmm. um, uh, because apart from our basic biological drives, I think probably our most fundamental emotional or social desire is the desire to be taken seriously. Uh, and, and to we have be seen, to be understood. To be heard, to be appreciated, yes. to be understood, all, all of it to be mm. acknowledged. And here we come back to the symbolism of food again because nothing says... Well, there are two things perhaps that, that say really eloquently I'm taking you seriously as a person. One is that I have prepared this food for you. Mm. That's how seriously I take you. I think the other, which is a non-food topic, is listening to someone. Mm. When you, in the same way as if you come to someone's home and they don't offer you a cup of tea, you feel as though something's odd. Uh, you feel very odd if you're talking to someone and it's very clear that they're not listening, mm. if they're looking over your shoulder or, or at glancing phones. at their watch or at their phones. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they don't have to spell it out. The, mm. the unspoken message is, I don't take you seriously mm. enough to listen to you. And it feels quite annihilating. It, I mean, as individuals, we have great power over one another. Yes. It's strange. If you're on the phone to someone and they're distracted by something on their screen, you can hear it straight away and it makes one feel... Um, diminished, I think. Yes, yes. So I think, uh, but in the same way, the, the, the business of cooking for someone, preparing, mm. for even making a cup of tea for someone, mm. is a beautifully eloquent expression of the proposition that I do mm. take you seriously. I think the, the, it is, it is both goes back to the thing of sustenance because knowing that someone is keeping you alive in a way, I mean, at its most basic, they're feeding you, they don't want you to be hungry. But I think also it, um, it's about a language, cooking. Mm. And I think uh, there's a, food is very much, that's, there's a variety of languages, I think, that food speaks in. And it's about the first, in, in a great sense, it's about the culture we come from. And I think people are very, um, when people share the food from, from their own particular yes. culture, it's yes. a very important invitation. But I think in a smaller scale, that in, not smaller in terms of importance, but smaller in terms of how many people make that, make the community, it's the family. Mm. There's certain food that I think is the food, the language of my family, yes. and that we eat together, and that you pass on. Um, you know, there's a recipe in, kitchen, uh, some chicken my mother made, and we ate, you know, it was kind of a regular weekend uh, chicken in a pot with vegetables, very unfashionable sort of food, really delicious. And um, this matters to me a great deal. My mother died young, and it's by making that, uh, my children uh, get to eat my mother's food, and it, yes. which means a lot to me. That's cultural and, transmission, and, isn't it? Yes, it mm. is. And I also think that it's just, I suppose also their understanding that something that I ate as I was growing up, I would like to think their children will yes. eat yes. Um, that food as well. And I think that, that we, we, to be robbed of that part of a language, and even people, I mean, it doesn't have to be about cooking, because not everyone cooks or wants to cook, but it is that thing of certain foods that belong to our childhood. We may not even, uh, if we're really describing them, like them that much, but they so summon up. Mm. I mean, I think particularly the confectionery that you ate as a child. You know, yes. sometimes those particular 
chocolates you ate or sweets, they actually don't taste that great now, but they're so much part of your memory yes. of being a child and how pleasurable it was then. If you were given some money, you could go to the shop. And, you know, we weren't, we didn't eat sweet things very much. And it was always a bit of a, you went to the shop and you would get something and it was a real treat. Yes. And that's still... You know, that still holds true, even if you wouldn't, you know, don't eat it very often, that sudden flood of memory. Mm. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? There is a really, there's a nostalgic dimension to so much food, mm. and, and that's a classic example of it. Uh, and we're, we're living with a nostalgia boom at the moment, which I think is, we're, we're always nostalgic at, mm, at, yes. at some level, but I think in the contemporary world, when there are so many challenges mm. and where the future looks so uncertain, whether we're talking mm. about a nuclear holocaust or artificial intelligence ruling the world or yeah, whatever we it. might be talking about, I think the, mm. the, the comfort food concept, the, the, the nostalgic dimension of food, is not just mm. a reminder of the security of mm. childhood, but it's also associated with a past that we survived. And if you're not sure whether you're going to survive mm. the future, it's very like people in, in fashion, in car design, in music, mm. the whole retro craze at the moment seems to me partly at least to be about, well, we feel safe with all that because we know we, we, we conquered that, we mm. mastered that. We don't know whether we'll be able to master the next bit. I do think that, that, that might, I can understand how that could play a part. I also think in a sense, all food is comfort food. Yes. Um, yes. Well, not rest, not, you know, the, the, to remove fine dining and all that awfulness from the, from the concept. And I think that when the world outside feels challenging, as you say, uh, and insecure, I think that's when uh, the home, the kitchen, the table, mm. a bowl of food in front of us feels yes. in a way like uh, protection um, against that. And I think that, that things at home, the, the concept of home, and mm. I think it's often called cocooning. Yes. Um, and I think that, that, that we need that. We need to go into our caves yes. and Absolutely. feel that we're safe there. Yes. And I think that also when people then go into their own homes and start cooking, they, uh, and I'm speaking from experience, we, uh, so I will say, you know, we bring a lot of our family's food with us and we remember we're cooking something that our grandmother might have cooked or our mother or an uncle or whoever it may be. But at the same time, we're going into a slightly different world, slightly different ingredients are available to us. And mm. because of that, we're forging, we're expressing our own particular identity. Yes. Yes. So we share our identity with the family we came from, but we are creating, you know, new lives, new families, and everything. Yes. And so I think, in in a sense, you have to establish that. You have to establish your own self. Your that and. You know, you have to sort of, I suppose, belong to yourself and belong to the family you're making as well as... Uh, yeah. and, the, and even if that's living alone and having your friends, I think the friends you choose to surround yourself with are also a form of family. And in a way that, you know, in the olden days, people actually used not to have friends outside the family. If you read something like the Foresight Saga, mm. um, it's and all that, that that was because everyone kept within their own the, the community. Family was quite extended, and that, so, but it was. But, and now, and we've changed all that. So, but in order to feel still that we have the same sort of family group, that friends, that friends in a way, um, become more intimate. I think it mm. isn't. Whereas I think if you read about friendships before, they would they, on the whole, they were perhaps. They wouldn't be privy to one's inner life yes. in a way that I think friends are now. Or maybe, yes. I think I'm just speaking for women here. I know men don't do that an awful lot. I hope they uh, do more. Yes, I think, I think more. increasingly it's But both. I think men tend to use women for that. They do, men do talk about their inner life, but I think that is around uh, women mm. more. But I mm. think it's changing. I'd like to think it, it, it was changing because it's... Uh, you know, everyone needs an outlet and everyone needs to feel connected um, in an emotional sense and that you can be your true self with the people you surround yourself yes, with. Yes, exactly. Not just play golf with them, you know. Yes, yes. I think this, this uh, brings us to a very interesting, a very significant moment in, in the discussion. Um, it's, it's interesting how in Australia and indeed around the Western world, Britain is the same. Households have been steadily shrinking and we have had to rely for our herds uh, more and more on something beyond the family. I mean, the, the nuclear family household 
really in Australia really only became the gold standard for households in the 1920s. It's a very new, for previously it was typically a three generation household and probably five or six or seven or eight people under one roof. Mm. Now, uh, at the moment, uh, the average Australian household is 2.5 people and mm. we're heading for an even smaller average household. The fastest growing household type in Australia is the single person household. Mm. And that's a symptom of many things. And of course, many people who learn, I'm not suggesting it's bad, mm. I am suggesting it's risky. Uh, many people who live alone celebrate that as a symbol of their freedom and mm. independence. They can stay in their pajamas all weekend if they want to, and they I can know, eat. That's lovely. <laughs> uh, dare I say, eat baked beans out of a can, because uh, no one's looking, or watch daytime television, etc. Um, but they are at greater risk uh, of, especially if they're involuntary mm. solo householders. They're at greater risk of social isolation, uh, and we can see an interesting correlation here. Reading your book, I'm sorry I'm going on about this, but reading your book, I realise how crucial food is in this whole story. Because mm. the, the Australian situation is, yes, we are becoming more socially fragmented, and simultaneously we're having an epidemic of mental health, uh, uh, mental illness in, in various forms. Uh, an epidemic of anxiety, an epidemic mm. of depression, an epidemic of obesity, which is often an expression of some kind of mm. emotional disorder. So it seems to me those two things are actually one thing. If you become more socially fragmented, you're more likely, being more cut off from mm. the herd, you're more likely to experience some form of emotional difficulty. And food then, uh, it strikes me, and I'd be interested in your take on this, Nigella, but food becomes a potential bridge, uh, a facilitator of the social interaction that we're missing out on yes. because our households are so small. It's dangerous also, of course, food can become uh, the great consolation yes. for feeling lonely. But as households shrink, we are eating out more, and that's, it's, I mean, the, do you see what I'm driving at? I the, do, the, and yeah. I, I'll tell you what I think, I think there are various things. I think there have been a couple of books out recently uh, about loneliness, yes, um, and you know, and it's you know, also it's, it's largely it's some part to do with um, an aging population, yes, um, and you know, widowed people living alone and f for the first time in their lives, mm. which is very mm. difficult. I think mm. also um, the growth of cities, yes, really contributes to that. Yes, and in terms of eating, I think you're right. I think that, but the sort of eating that you're talking about, that sort of comfort eating, which I always think should be called discomfort eating, because yes. it isn't at all um, a comforting, yes. is, is because pe it's people eating, but they tend to be eating food they haven't cooked. And it, I always think it's a great pity when people say to me that I don't cook any, anymore, it's just me, I'm not going to cook just for myself, it's not worth cooking for myself. And as I said earlier, I really believe it's important to cook for oneself. Um, I've cooked for myself for a long time. My um, my husband John got uh, oral cancer and couldn't eat, and I, and I realised how important uh, cooking and eating and coming together was when you can't feed someone and someone can't eat and is therefore not able to join in those sorts of occasions. I always sort of felt, although I didn't always cook dinner for myself, and um, I certainly always ate and I would take great care over you know, slicing a tomato or having bread and cheese or whatever it might be. And I do enjoy cooking for myself. I mean, I, I like food and I, and I actually find it very relaxing cooking for myself. But I also, and I feel symbolically it's important to say that you will take care of yourself. Mm. But I do think that it's, it does become a vicious circle because the, the people feeling that it's not worth cooking for themselves yes. don't and eat food that doesn't make them feel great, and it carries on, whereas actually just the act of doing something, and I don't mean you have to follow an elaborate recipe, even just, it's even just about setting yourself a nice place, mm. you know, mm. even if you're just having a bit of toast. Yes. Um, those things, yes. um, th those things make an awful lot of difference, and you have to create your own space, I think, if, if you're by yourself, mm. and I think that, um, I don't know, I just think that 
you know, we know in, in life you have to be kind to other people, and I think, you, you know, one has to learn to be kind to oneself. Mm. And, I, and I think it's, it sounds a bit sort of new age, but I think it isn't really. I think it's, it's essential, and then from that comes a sense of self-respect as well. I mean, I don't have self-respect in many ways. It would never occur, you know, I don't brush my hair or anything when I'm by myself, but I still make myself, you know, yes. food I want to eat. My mother used to tell me that the definition of a gentleman was a person who used a butter knife when dining alone. <laughs> do you know there's a, there's a uh, definition, there's nothing to do with food, but I'll tell you there's a definition of a gentleman, which um, I've heard, which is to do a sort of English public school type of notion, which is it's someone who's never rude to someone else by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we're on definitions of gentlemen, what about someone who knows how to play the piano accordion but chooses not to? <laughs> <laughs> we can't do better than that one. <laughs> uh, I mean, just as a social researcher, can I add a footnote to what you were just saying? As many saying as you like. That? I love hearing you talk. Well, no. <laughs> uh, I think those of us who don't live alone, but know someone who does, mm. for example, a next door neighbour, just every now and then to say, mm. come in, we've just set an extra place, come and have a meal mm. with us. It doesn't mean we have to be best friends, but I think uh, because of the hazard of loneliness in this increasing number of people who are living alone, the rest of us do have some kind of social, moral, mm. whatever you'd call it, responsibility to make that symbolic gesture. Uh, and I think people do understand that and feel that, for example, at Christmas. Yes. I mean, oh, quite absolutely, a, uh, yes. And I think, I think then, you know, it's, I think most of us do feel that and wouldn't leave, would never think of leaving someone yes. spending the day alone. Um, yes. But I've always thought, actually, it's always very useful. I have a view, it's not that, which is uh, my rule for people at Christmas when they want tips. I know they're asking for cooking ones, but I always say you've got to have some people there, or at least one person there, that your family don't know well enough to behave badly in front of. <laughs> you need, you know, you need a human shield. Yeah. So I feel you can do two useful things at the same time. Yeah. 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 By the way, I've, I've had a Christmas tip also, which will probably resonate, which is uh, when, you, when you have a potentially explosive situation with the extended family at Christmas, give everyone a job. Uh, yes. Let them all participate. If they're chopping the carrots, they're much less likely to misbehave. Yes, well, except if they do stop misbehaving and they have a knife, that's worse. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, well, your book is all about creativity. I mean, your, your, all your writing is mm -hmm. about creativity. And I think this is a lovely aspect of it, that it's not about rigid adherence to recipes mm. and absolutely essential that you have all of these ingredients prepared in exactly this way. There's a kind of spontane spontaneity in it uh, which says creativity with a capital C to me. And I, 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 it, I imagine you'd agree that cooking is an art form like writing poetry or... Yes, but interestingly, you see, um, I think it's Emmanuel Kant who said that, you know, art... You know, art had to be um, functionless. So um, a vase that you put flowers in is, yes. isn't a work of art, but, but a vase that right, sits that, in that there. Take flowers, so yes. I think, in a way, it's it, 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 it belongs in its own category, food, because it is, in a way, an art, and yet it has a purpose, mm. and also it's it's demolished. Um, yes. It's consumed, and that's quite important because, in a way, it's it's very it's 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 liberating. And I think that that we read, you know, if you're at all interested in um, the ancient religions, like you know, Buddhism, or which now you know, very fashionable. It's in a, in a strange way. It, you, it's about non-attachment, isn't yes. it? Because yes. because the food gets gets eaten. But I would say that I think the creative aspect of cooking, and I'm and I, you don't have to believe it's an art form um, to feel that it's creative, because it is. It's very important to a lot of people because pe human beings actually do need a creative outlet. Mm. And um, I think I speak to so many people who feel it's something that they put their, themselves in. And yes. you know, so not everyone does. I mean, I feel I'm incredibly lucky that I feel at work. I I do get that, mm. but I 
but not everyone does, and you mm. need it. And some people find it through gardening, and some pe people find it through cooking. Mm. And I think it's, it, there's an element of play which we don't get very often as adults as well about cooking. And there's, and, you know, because it's, you know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's your hands are in the food or you're, you're yes. making dough or something like that. And it, it, is, it is something which is unlike... I don't know, it's a bit like being a child yes. again. Yes, well, all, in a way, all creativity is, isn't it? It's a, mm. some visceral, primitive thing that comes out. But you're absolutely right, of course, to say that any form of self-expression is highly therapeutic. Mm. Uh, and the paradox is that we find ourselves by losing ourselves in mm. the task. Um, and I think one of the great antidotes to anxiety is creative self-expression and gardening, mm. cooking, singing, dancing, all of these things uh, which all of us can do, we don't have to be good at them to mm. do them. Uh, yes, I think, it's, I think that's very true because I'm sort of, you know, I'm someone who, as a friend of mine's mother always says, boils up inside her head and, you know, I'm thinking about things, I go around in circles, I think it's called ruminating. Um, and uh, I feel that cooking is sort of... Um, activity for lazy people um, and you know there's enough fact you're doing something and I also think actually that but the sort of cooking I do I mean I don't do anything very you know difficult that you have to feel you're alert at every moment but you're focused it's not so challenging that you're you know you're anxious but it's just absorbing enough that your focus yes. is on what you're doing yes. and I also think um, and then this just goes back to the creative aspect too. It, food, food is aesthetically um, so pleasing. And us watching, oh, the sound and the smell and watching the colours in a pan. Um, uh, somehow, it, it, it's, uh, beauty is incredibly important, actually. I think that more and more. Uh, yes. And I think it's about small things. You know, just seeing a bowl of lemons on a, uh, is, they're beautiful. Yes. Um, and it's not something you're called upon to admire. You know, and people, when you mm. go to galleries, it's mm. there, you know, which painting are they meant to like? What, what view are they meant? You don't need a view. You know, we're, yes. we're all rather tired of having views sometimes. There are so many views around. You don't yes. need a view, you just need to, to appreciate it. And yes. I, think that, um, I think that's very important. Yes. Mindfulness has become a buzzword, mm. of course, in, uh, in the 21st century. Uh, and there is something about being absolutely mindful mm. while preparing the food. Yes. Don't uh, be listening to the radio or watching mm. television or having an audio book or something while cooking. Mm be lost in yes. the act of cooking. Yes, I think that, and I also think there's something, I don't know if you'd read, there's something very uh, basic in human beings, it's that we have a fantasy of transformation. Yes. And uh, in, when you cook, things do get transformed. Mm. It is a curious form of magic. And I've, when I wrote about baking, I, I came to baking relatively late in life, and I, I'd always thought there were bakers and there were cooks, and yes. I was a cook, and it was rather wonderful. But, and I, I think that, that so, you know, when I wrote my book about baking, everyone said, you really can't do a baking book. It was 2000, no one bakes. It's a, and um, I, I did it anyway. And, uh, and now, and now, and they, now bake. they bake. <laughs> yes. um, but, um, but I think... It's very important people take things, they, the stuff they bake into work, they share it with their mm. colleagues. Mm. It is a very, it's, it's, it's a way of giving an offering. But more than that, much as I love cooking, when you make a stew and you put in, you know, some stewing beef and you put uh, leeks and carrots and, you know, some red wine and maybe, you know, a mushroom or two, you, well, it's raw, you have, you have a notion of what it's going to be like when it's cooked. But the, the, there's something about baking that you're in your bowl, you know, in the bowl, you're somehow, there you have, you know, eggs, butter, sugar, flour, and this miracle happens inside the oven and it turns out to be a cake. Yes. And I yes. think, I mean, I really do yes. feel like that. I think I've always felt, to, you know, you were saying about an art form, I think that baking is like a, a combination of chemistry and poetry. Mm. And, it, mm. and, and I think it speaks to us a lot, and maybe particularly now because it, you are you are witnessing a transformation and you're bringing that about and with that transformation somehow for me it was very important because i felt 
like a slightly more competent version of myself. I thought it was something that would be difficult to do and um, I wasn't that sort of a person. We have used, I'm not that sort of a person. I, I'm, I cook a lot, but I'm not, I don't bake. And then you do it and you yes. find you are that person. And perhaps there are so many uh, preconceptions we have about ourselves. We're not that sort of person, we're this sort of a person. We kind of fix our identities or they're fixed for us in, within a family. Um, and actually those doing that thing, and I think cooking, does, it teaches so many lessons. I mean, I feel that it teaches lessons about life, that you need such a combination of structure and framework, things you do need to understand when you start a recipe, what it is, and vaguely what the, you know, you, you need precise um, directions. You need reliable measurements, which you may, you may ignore later. I would beg you not to if you're doing a cake, but otherwise, when you're cooking, you could ignore it completely. Yes. And you can even when you've baked for long enough. And I think that's the same, that's true. You know, you need all that, but, it, but you've got to, you've got to uh, train yourself to have an instinct you can trust. And you've got to uh, work out what you want. And you've got to learn when to, sort of let hold of the framework and just be spontaneous, just go with the flow. And that's cooking. I mean, and that's absolutely true of life out of the kitchen too. So I think it, I think all these things, um, how you cook and, and how you teach yourself to enjoy, um, to enjoy flavor and how you teach yourself that, you know, to give yourself permission to take pleasure in food, that you're someone, you were saying everyone needs to be taken seriously, that you're taking yourself seriously. Yes, yes. All these things make a huge impact on how we live our lives generally. Yes. I thought we might conclude by just talking a little bit about uh, a concept that you raise in the introduction to the book. And I just want to read a few sentences from the, the, the introduction is worth the purchase price alone. Um, but Nigella wrote this, all cooking, all life, is part of a continuum. And as this book came into being, I felt I didn't want to interfere with the honest jumble. Don't you like that? The messiness of having no chapters, no breaks in the run of recipes, felt so much more like the way I actually cook and live. Of course, there has to be some order. There is a flow to the recipes, which once the book was finished, I tried to impose without losing a certain random quality. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And this Kierkegaardian premise holds true here too. That's to say, I tried to keep the living forwards element intact. To those who like clear delineations and neat order, I apologize. <laughs> but I breathe easier without either. That's lovely. Thank Do you want you. to say something about chaos? Well, I suppose I feel that when you cook, there is a moment at which everything could go wrong and sometimes does. And uh, nearly everything in cooking can be rectified except for over-salting, I found in my experience. <laughs> um, and when things go wrong, it's in cooking, you, I, I find sometimes like something hasn't worked as I thought or I... Um, you know, forgot about a pan somewhere and I've had to do something to rectify it and I've had to think creatively and uh, instinctively of what to do and often what I end up with um, is so much better than what I had planned to cook. And I think that too is a lesson and I think that, mm. that it's that thing of it's not, you know, in life you just make mistakes all the time and things go wrong and it, that doesn't matter. It's, it's how you rectify that and I think as a parent um, obviously you're, you know one is wrong all the time but apart from that I think as a parent um, you teach your children a better lesson you know if, if you start feeling bad about having made mistakes mm -hmm. in front of them or that they witness then you know I remember someone once saying to me is that how crippling it would be to have a perfect parent. Yes, and, yes. you know, it's just, just as well. And actually, if they see that you make mistakes and then they see how you, you either, you know, say you've lost your temper with someone and then they see that you 
straightforwardly you apologize to that person mm. um, they see how that sort of how life works in that way or if you've just made a mistake and you know you've dropped something you have to you have to work out how, how to mend it or how to do without it all these things is you're making mistakes mm. and mm. you you just have to you have to get on from there and sometimes they're very trivial mistakes and sometimes they're not but i think all that is you know they children learn from that and i think that life is chaotic yes. and that's again i think why people uh, take solace from cooking is because even though you, there's still chaos in the kitchen generally speaking you you just you're finding a way of the anarchy of nature, if you like, you yes. are sort of yes. controlling it a bit. You are turning it. Um, you end up with something you can eat. Food, and yes. Turning it into something you can eat. Yes. And I think that we're, you know, in a way, you know, the whole story of um, civilization is about, you know, the attempt of humans to tame nature. Nature yes. kind of always has the last laugh. But nevertheless, yes. you know, we carry on trying and we need that. That's how we find meaning. Mm. Mm. And for me, that's through cooking. Thank you. Well, I want to conclude just by reading something that expresses what we've enjoyed with Nigella tonight. This is the, the last sentence from her introduction to the book. I, I always err on the side of generosity, believing that whether in the kitchen or out of it, this is a happier way to be. I'm talking about Please. portion sizes. <laughs> He's Please making it sound in, more elevated. Please join me in thanking Nigella for her generosity. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for yours. Thank you very, very, very much. Thank you very much to Nigella, Hugh and our friends at the School of Life for allowing us to record this wonderful conversation. Your heartwarming, thought-provoking and laughter-filled chat has given us so much to think about. We've added links to Nigella's new book, At My Table, and Hugh's new book, Australia Reimagined, in our show notes. This edited conversation was produced by our digital editor, Lizzie Martin. The music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for our next conversation or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. For more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. This podcast is supported by our friends at Impact Investment Group and Giant Leap, a venture capital fund that invests in businesses doing good in the world. One of Giant Leap's key themes is health and well-being, which means that they look for innovative businesses improving physical and mental well-being in communities. Impact Investment Group is also a B Corp, a group of businesses dedicated to social and environmental change, while still making a buck. You can read more about Impact Investment Group by visiting dumbofeather.com forward slash by better by B.